I would love for us to get curious about how we view our bodies because from society, from even our medical frameworks, we often see the body as a tool that we're using, or maybe it's a project we're trying to complete, or an object we're fixing through XYZ. In reality, the body is where you literally experience your entire life. The big silence. Hello and welcome to the Big Silence Podcast. I am your host, Karina Dawn. I'm a mental health advocate, wellness entrepreneur, and co-founder of the leading women's fitness community, Tone It Up. I'm also a New York Times bestselling author and founder of the nonprofit, The Big Silence Foundation. I'm also a wife, daughter, friend, and yes, palm mom of five. And just like you, I'm a work in progress. I have experienced profound grief and trauma and then found deep joy in life. And now I'm here to share my story, be a safe space for you to share yours. And we're having in-depth conversations with psychologists, doctors, spiritual leaders, friends, and others who have been impacted directly or indirectly by a mental health condition. No more embarrassment, no more shame, no holding back, only healing. Let's go! Mental health is my wealth, the stress up on the shelf. Nobody can love me the way I love myself. Seek and ye shall find the truth and the light. I'm living my purpose, so I sleep good at night. No more depression or spiritual recession. And every day that I wake up, it's a blessing. So breathe in, breathe out. Everybody in the house know what I'm talking about. The big silence. The big silence. Episode 17. Wow, Bobby, you've been busy. I have been busy. We just got back from tour. Well, so we went to fifth, no, ten, I don't know how many, ten cities, perhaps, on tour. We went tour. to many cities. Many cities. We're going to go back out. We don't know when yet, but we have the tour bus, the big silence tour bus. And I want to do a separate podcast about our experience of life on the road. But we are back here now in Austin. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bobby, the bus driver. So not only is he cleaning pools. Yes. Um, he's driving a bus. Yeah. My finance degree is just super <laughs> valuable right now. I'm telling you. Mm-hmm. All right. So I literally just like 15 minutes ago got done uh, talking with Allison Stoner. Yeah. She was awesome. I really like her. I do too. Yeah. You know what I was thinking too? At the end and you're, you know, saying how smart she is. I was like, yeah, she is super on it. And you know, I usually say safety is sexy. Smartness is sexy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you must find me really sexy. Exactly. <laughs> All right, so this episode, um, I started following Allison Stoner probably in twenty early 2020. Uh, I heard of her through my friend Nick Onkin, who's a photographer and multi-talented, amongst other, uh, other things. He's... Got about as many talents as Bobby Goldstein does. Wow. Good stuff. Very impressive. <laughs> she started acting and being in shows when she was three years old, as she said. Yep. And she's been in the limelight since then. Um, but I won't tell you much here. But she also is the co-founder of Movement Genius, which I want to have her on um, to number one. 
teach me how to dance. I mean, I love you, but you're not a great dancer. But how good do you feel when you just move your body? I mean, that's why we started Tone It Up too. It's like moving your body, you feel good. And yes, I actually, I talk about it in the podcast. I actually sometimes turn music on and dance outside by myself in the mornings mm. to just get my energy up. Mm-hmm. And then I go duck my head in a cold plunge. Yeah. Lots of crazy stuff. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was kind of spacing out. I wasn't really listening to the last part. because Well, I was you just, never listen to me. I was just picturing Elaine dancing on Seinfeld and I was like, oh, that's Karina. Yes, but the the truth is he never really listens to me. I always have to repeat myself three or four times. What'd you say? All right. Allison Stoner. (laughs) (laughs) Here's our conversation. I love her view. She actually opens up. We talk about eating disorders and mental health as well. So enjoy the episode. Um, And I'll repeat all of this to Bobby later. Goodbye, everybody. All right. Welcome, Allison Stoner. I am so excited to have you here. I've been following you on Instagram for probably two years um, through our friend Nick. Um, So I wanted to have you on the podcast because I see what you're doing on social media and your movement towards mental health and putting so much effort into bringing that voice out of you and especially now but I kind of want to start back so um my friend Jeremy is here my friend and my uh, business partner and his daughter we were just in the pool like five minutes ago talking and she's like who's on your podcast today I was like Allison Stoner she was on Camp Rock and she was like it's a nine-year-old girl she's like oh my god I love Camp Rock she's coming here I was like no it's on Zoom she's like I want to meet her so I told her I texted him I'm like have Sayo come up and say hi but um so you started as a child actor mm-hmm. you were in over 200 movies and films at what age did that start Yes. So first, hello. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. And I started dancing first in my hometown, Toledo, Ohio, at the age of three. And then between three and six, uh, we came upon a local modeling studio. And it was really just to help learn basic skills of, you know, interpersonal communication. At that age, you're not really aspiring in Toledo, Ohio to be an epic supermodel it's more like what are the life skills that we can learn through this you know i'm from indiana okay so we were neighbors and i also was like put into ballerina classes and then like put into like some kind of like you can be a model training type of thing we should we should (laughs) clarify because i know you also have such a huge athletic background um my family also had us in every single sport and rec activity possible. I was really fortunate. So these experiences were just one of many hobbies we were forming as youngsters. And around age six, the modeling studio talked about this particular convention where they go as a group and they bring you know a couple of folks from Ohio And even though I was under the age range, um, they said, we really encourage you to to try it out. And originally my older sister was going to attend, um, but I kind of went as her replacement because she was busy with a dance dance convention that week. 
And so we flew to New York and it was a really beautiful kind of small family vacation, just my, my mother and myself. And was exposed to you know all these competitions and agents and managers, and fortunately slash unfortunately, it depends on how you want to look at it. I experienced a lot of early success at the convention, and they strongly encouraged us to try auditioning in LA and seeking representation. And so, you know, I say fortunate because what a unique opportunity, and I say unfortunate because. We had no idea what we were getting into. And my family is supportive, right? Like they want to protect me. They want to make decisions that support and promote my growth and health. And yet entering the entertainment industry is like a crash course in a chaotic lifestyle and chronic unemployment and adult responsibilities on a child and just so many things that are shaping you before you have any chance to breathe and check in. And so um, it's been quite a journey, but it started really around age seven. And then again, fortunate slash unfortunate, once I started working, I never stopped. And a lot of people from the outside are like, wow, that's incredible. And I'm like, yes, and, and totally understand that. And y'all, I didn't even go to school. I didn't go to a regular school, like some fundamental core experiences that are pretty um, strange in my case. So between age three and seven, and this was happening, Mm -hmm. is this what you wanted? Or did you, were you like, this is so exciting. Like, I want this, I want this. Or did you feel, like, how did you feel? Yeah, at three to seven, when people ask me, you know, is this what you wanted to do when you were younger? I like to ask them, One, even if I said yes, would you listen to a three-year-old and say, we should uproot the family from Ohio and move everyone so that this three-year-old can shine? You know, like there are a lot of layers to the amount of um, autonomy we're giving this said three-year-old. And like I said, I didn't feel forced. I didn't feel pressured. I think I was really enthusiastic about performing. I enjoyed the memorization of scripts and the process of, you know, hitting my mark and delivering on this role. And that that's all positive and beautiful. And once you go into a commercial setting and now you're not only a young kid, but you're also a product, it, it really adds a lot of dimensions to identity and personal development that, you know, just families are not prepared for. Yeah. Do you feel, and you don't have to answer this question, but it comes up in my mind only because it takes, it's something that personally happened to me with my mother who wanted me to be a model and be like this thing. Mm. Do you think your parents at all were, looking to you to fulfill something that they didn't fulfill? I know that a lot of folks have some aspect of that kind of experience. Uh, My father specifically had zero interest in (laughs) Hollywood. So he, you know, I didn't get to grow up with him much because I was consumed with work. Um, However, when I would visit him, you know, once or twice a year, he would, speak 
less about what I just spent three months doing filming and more about an article he read in the newspaper that he thought I would like about some, you know, geeky thing because I was always nerding out when I spent time with him. So I really appreciated that grounding um, aspect to our relationship. And with my mom, you know, she was an executive meeting planner and she's a really wonderful host to large gatherings. And so I don't know the ins and outs of her deepest drivers. However, at the conscious surface level, I really felt like she repeatedly let me know if I ever wanted to stop, I could. And that there was no um, focus on the fame or the notoriety. In fact, she was like, if you're going to be on a set and there's a crew there, you have to learn everyone's name and you need to understand that they were here before you arrived. They're going to be here after you leave and to really just be professional and be responsible. And so I know that there are a lot of folks who identify their parents as stage parents and consciously, I don't feel that I had that experience, but we could of course mine under the layers and see what was at play. It's, it's hard to say in my case, because I had a lot of major opportunities right at the jump. Like my first film was a box office hit with Steve Martin. It wasn't like I was auditioning for a student film. And then after that, it was Dancing with Missy Elliott. And then after that, it was Jobs on Disney Channel. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't really have that ramp up to check in. It was just like, whoa, how are you going to say no to this? Right. Exactly. And it's everyone's dream, right? Yep. That's what it seems like. (laughs) We'll get to that. Um, So, okay. So you're seven years old and what happens next? You're in LA? I'm in LA. So that means socially, I'm now pulled out of school regularly. I'm kind of attending regular school, kind of on set. And um, developmentally, I'm now adopting these work habits where I'm training multiple hours a day. I'm on set multiple hours a day. And um, most of my peers are considered competition as opposed to a support network. Mm. Um, And financially, I'm starting to make money, which means my parents have to figure out the infrastructure to support that business. And they wanted to, you know, protect me from not having my money used or abused by anyone. And so I, at, you know, seven to 13, and becoming the president of a corporation, which is just funny to say out loud. (laughs) And I, if we're looking at it from the financial standpoint, I'm now making dozens of people money that they use to support their families. (laughs) And so at that age, like seven to 13, how many people (laughs) were you employing? That's like crazy. Well, if you think about agents, managers, lawyers, um, and then As I started developing my own content later, I'm now hiring contractors and it expanded to up to 40 people. I can't even, I'm 41 years old and I can't handle that. (laughs) Well, (laughs) but you, it's so interesting because of course I'm not directly corresponding with everyone every day and yet a lot is riding on me and there's this like blanket of unspoken responsibility and pressure, you know, and, and 
it's stuff that you wouldn't be able to unpack until later in hindsight when you're like, oh, that's what was happening. Oh, I had those kinds of stress responses because I was under abnormal amounts of stress. So as a child star, what did stress feel like to you? And could you recognize it back then? And what did you do? I didn't, I didn't have names for it like stress in the way that I speak to young people today who are in the industry. And I've heard a six-year-old tell me that they're feeling like they're about to burn out. Mm. And I did not have that awareness. Mm-hmm. I, you know, interpreted everything through the lens of overachievement, perfectionism. And, you know, as someone who auditions for a living as a child, I'm being conditioned to win your approval instantaneously. And so I think a lot of my attention and effort were directed towards what do I what am I supposed to do here to win favor, secure the job, um, do the right thing, be a good role model. And it was not really about like, how am I feeling in this? So when you start to notice that something's up is it manifests as other symptoms, whether it's physical pain or ailments, mm-hmm. some social you know, issues, behavioral issues. A lot of folks see young starlets on the rise who start to quote unquote act out. And if you have a more compassionate understanding of what's happening, a lot of times there is an unmanageable amount of stress on the individual and they're finding whatever coping strategy helps them change that state of discomfort and suffering as quickly as possible. Some look to drugs, some to, for me, it was eating and exercise. Yeah, I just became so addicted. So you went to rehab, right? You Yes. Yeah. Because um, you were in Camp Rock with Jimmy Lovato, correct? Mm-hmm. And you both went to rehab around the same time. Yes, but I did mine privately. (laughs) So what was that like? And what age was that? And how did you reach out to say, I need to go to rehab? So I was um, auditioning for the role of Katniss in the Hunger Games, actually. Mm -hmm. And it reached an extreme level of commitment to the character, where if you read the books, the character is some form of emaciated. Um, you know, she's lean and strong, but they're in survival mode. And so I took it upon myself to train extensively. And I was considered in most categories within the industry to be on a short list. So that means I didn't yet make it to the level where I would get direct offers. However, I had proven that I was a reliable choice and candidate. So if all the people said no who got direct offers, they would go to a short list. So knowing this, I really wanted to be super prepared because that seemed like a dream role for me. And blending all my skill sets and adding in athletics, which was a near and dear facet of who I am. And so my health started declining because I was over-exercising and under-eating. And I recognized at this point, I am sacrificing my actual longevity for one role. And this is out of balance. This decision-making process and the fact that people around me are generally supportive of these extreme behaviors (laughs) 
is an indicator that something is, is wrong and needs attention. This feels like the thing I was trying to control is now controlling me and I can't seem to get out of it. And so I you know, made the decision to um, get professional help and do inpatient because I knew if I don't admit myself to uh, an environment where you can really have that necessary cocoon mm-hmm. for transformation, I will have a team, I will have projects, I will have too many forces saying, we still need you. And so, and, and I don't yet have the skills to set boundaries and say, no, I'm choosing my health and well-being. Yeah. At that point, I had never taken a break. It was my first break. And what since. age is this? This is right before I turned 18. Ooh. Yeah. So seven to, to 18, straight through. Again, just to make sense of it, because it's easy now to go, wow, someone should have stepped in. We were experiencing some of the most beautiful wonderful kinds of um, career trajectories that you could even fathom. And a lot of positive relationships formed. So I'm not trying to criminalize any one person or company. Yeah, It's just a complicated situation. So I get a lot of questions uh, in the mental health space and eating disorders is one that I get a lot where women want to talk about. Uh, When I was a teenager, it probably, it wasn't as bad, uh, you know, as severe possibly as what you were going through. But I definitely had the pressure as a teenage girl with bulimia and all of this, and it was short-lived. But there's a lot of um, women in my community that suffer from eating disorders. Is there, what is your number or your few tips that you can give them that if they're listening right now, because I get this so much. Uh, Well, first, Fundamentally, you wholeheartedly deserve to feel safe, comfortable, and confident in your mind and your body. And second, while caring for ourselves is an an essential part of health and well-being, when it becomes a fixation, an obsession, for me, instead of highlighting the behavior itself and saying, you know, you got to fix that. That's wrong. I actually approach it with curiosity and I say, oh, it looks like this is a signal that something's up. What is going on in my life right now that I'm feeling the urge to respond in this way? And so I, I take some of the pressure off of correcting the set of behaviors themselves up front. And I first start with, what is this um, indicating about what's going on in the rest of my life? And I think that that helps introduce a sense of compassion. And a lot of times when we're obsessing over a certain kind of behavior, I tried to correct it by placing a new set of behaviors And instead, for me, this recovery process, this transition was a much deeper shift in how I even approach the conversation of well-being. So it's less performance-driven where we're measuring, did you hit that metric today or not? And it's more cultivating an ongoing conversation of listening to your body, um, understanding the needs of that moment, responding mindfully and with care. 
and recognizing that doesn't mean you have to give up your, you know, high ambition or your high performance and outcome. It just means there's there's a a love and a wholeness at the center of that journey. And I found that it becomes far more sustainable to approach health and well-being um, through that lens. If you're listening to this and you're like, I've tried all these things and I really can't figure it out, I 100% encourage you to speak to a professional. It's so helpful. They have studied this. They have been trained with tools. And so, you know, releasing some of that shame or stigma and recognizing that's actually a beautiful portal for you to just understand what's going on. You deserve to feel equipped with tools to manage every aspect of life. And yeah, these are usually just hints and indicators. Yeah. And you brought up stigma. That's like the biggest thing. So so many um, of us don't want to get help because of the stigma, but talking about it more and saying you went through it. So how long were you in rehab for that? What was the transition coming out of it? And how has it been since then? Are you continuously working on it? So I know there are kind of different philosophies for how people talk about recovery. Some people are like, I'm done. Some people are like, I'm lifelong recovering. Um, And so my experience has been, I was inpatient for three months and, you know, found myself almost wishing that it could be even longer, but I knew that, hey, for my journey, like I'm ready to take the next step. And then there was a transitional period um, that lasted a couple of weeks and it helped us prepare for the tools we would need to use when we face difficult moments at home and just reassimilating really with a, a new set, a new approach to food and exercise. And I, I really, while I was in rehab, I really savored every opportunity to learn and practice these skills. So I came home with the intention of knowing this is going to get uncomfortable. It's going to be difficult. There will be slip ups and like, I'm choosing recovery. I'm choosing recovery. Um, So I think the toughest part transitioning back home was learning how to communicate to loved ones and to other people about the experience, but also what I need that would be supportive for this period. Because a lot of people have ideas about what they think is going to help. And you're like, please, please don't use those words. Please don't say those things. Please, if if I reach out, great. If not, please don't, you know. So there was a, a lot of anxiety. A lot of anxiety every day. The The days felt like years. The hours felt like days. And I would repeat this mantra, you know, one moment, one day, one step at a time, just over and over and over again. And thankfully for me, I've experienced, it's been about 10 years now, um, I have experienced significant freedom with food, with movement, um, body image, I know that's not the case for everyone. Sometimes it feels like it's still like you got to got to push for it and you got to make that decision each day. I'm I'm thankful that the therapist I've worked with, the books and the the way that I've approached it has allowed me to now on a daily basis not really experience 
those urges, um, not really behave in ways that I know. If I start seeing glimpses of it, I go, oh, interesting. Nice to see you. It's been a while. What's what are, going on? What are the urges? I just want to open up this conversation so someone listening can be like, oh, okay, I I have those urges too. That's normal. I can catch myself. Yeah. So first, you know, if anything sounds uh, like it's getting to a triggering spot, just pause this and set it aside. If it's not helpful, discard. Because um, I, you know, I like to avoid going into too much detail for yeah. that reason. But here, some of the urges for me in my journey might be, you know, oh, I'm noticing that I want to start counting calories again. Um, I'm noticing that when I consume a larger meal, I have this thought that I need to somehow compensate through activity instead of knowing that this is a lifelong journey and some meals will be larger, some meals will be smaller. And naturally, if you listen to your body, you'll probably end up, you know, eating a little bit more or less anyway. And when I start kind of nitpicking on foods as if some are good or some are bad, instead of just an overarching experience of lots of different varieties of foods in a balanced way, you know, anytime that I see myself beginning to fixate Mm -hmm. and body image, particularly, you know, I have moments, especially around summertime, I spent most of my life, no matter what size I was, I didn't, I never wanted to be in a bathing suit and I didn't want people looking at me. Mm-hmm. And I, I was so uncomfortable with attention in that way. Also with, with sexuality, when I, you know, went through puberty and then I was like, oh no, now you're looking at me with a whole different lens. I found myself really covering up as much as possible. So with body image now, I really try to recenter myself and and say, okay, I know those external forces, media, maybe some social pressures still feel like they're there, but can you make the decision about what you're wearing today from a more authentic, loving, open-minded place? And if that's where you were operating from, what would you choose to wear? And that's helping me be a little bit um, braver in terms of, you know, I wore a swimsuit yesterday and sure it was a a one piece that covered as much as you can, but that was still a huge step for me. And I got to enjoy the water and the company, um, in ways that I don't typically. And then on the reverse side, if I'm starting to pick apart certain parts of my body, I'm, that's probably the area where I have to practice most acceptance still is that genetically and you know no matter what i do i have a certain body type there's a shape to it there will be ways that i do or don't gain weight there will be spaces where i feel like more or less of a woman because of certain features and and that's where i, I really have to remember like to celebrate beauty the way i do on everyone else like oh my gosh i love how wonderfully unique you are and and begin to say yes and me too i'm i'm in that group well number 1 you are beautiful and this is the first Thanks. time that we've you know actually talked in person and you're so smart and you're beautiful and everyone out there and i've also you know, through the years and we have our ebbs and flows where as women and hormones and 
aging and this and stress and then pandemic. I've, you know, during the pandemic gained like over 20 pounds and people are like, what's wrong with Karina? Now I've lost it because I'm actually active again. (laughs) But, you know, there is a lot of pressure from society and especially someone like you who's in the public eye like that. And then being able to manage it and, you know, I tone it up. We've never counted calories. That was with Kat and I. The number one thing is we never want to talk negative about a woman because whatever season you're in as a yes. woman, you are beautiful. Yes. Uh, beautiful to celebrate the more fluid experience instead of getting stuck on some some specific destination. If you can really embrace like, oh, this is a season. This is a phase. It also, I think, relaxes some of that pressure. You know, I'm like, yeah, I put on seven pounds a couple months ago. And instead of going, uh-oh, it was like, ah, I was okay. Like, eh, well, that's cool. I made, yeah, I've made some decisions and, and found myself here. And I'll make some decisions and find myself Whatever. in another. It's not yeah. a big deal. It really isn't. Oh. So, okay. I want to shift back into the mental health space and how you transitioned from where you were and into movement genius. Mm-hmm. I want to hear more about that because sometimes I wake up in the morning and I'll like put on some Sonos and like music and I'll just, Bobby, my husband is not around. He doesn't know this, but I'll go outside and I'll just start dancing. Oh yeah. Let's talk about so movement and movement genius. Yes. So on my personal healing journey, one of the biggest game changers was when the therapist I was working with helped me recognize that I carry stress and anxiety, emotions, even trauma in my body. It's not just something that's in my mind and brain from the neck up. And so if I'm going to fully recover or experience a new quality of life, I have to understand that mind-body connection. And so I went on to get some of my own certifications under Dr. Jamie Marich and John Hopkins University. And I was fascinated when I looked at the larger conversations around mental health that people didn't involve the body. And I'm like, wait a second, you may learn how to you know, frame some of these negative thoughts But if in the moment the anxiety is causing your chest to tighten and your body is in fight or flight and you don't know what to do to relieve that stress, then we're going to continue to feel stuck, even if we're repeating a positive mantra. We have to learn how to work with the body and the mind and brain and, and all aspects of who we are. So at the start of the pandemic, I after getting my certification in trauma-informed movement facilitation, I put together 14 days of live mindful movement classes. And you didn't have to have any experience. That was very important for me to share with people. You don't need to know anything about yoga, dance, fitness. This is your chance to check in with yourself. You can do it seated. You can do it standing and reconnect. And so I put you know put out these classes over 150,000 people tuned in over 14 days and it signaled to me this is important and valuable especially at a time when 
the relationships to our bodies and our environments are shifting so significantly. And so I started working with psychotherapists and experts to design stress relief techniques and mental health tools that included both the mind and body. And we put this library together and that's what became Movement Genius. So Movement Genius right now is a subscription platform that offers these stress relief techniques, these full body programs that help you improve your mental and emotional well-being. And you founded it with your sister or sister-in-law? Or no, it's not your sister. My <laughs> sister, sister is the co-founder and COO, yes. Corey. Yes, I love that. You know, um, with the big silence, our nonprofit foundation, my sister is our executive director. It's so wow. lovely. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually brought us close even closer together. Um Rachel, she worked in nonprofit for over a decade, and then I somehow got her to work with me. But I love it. That's wonderful. Okay. One other thing. So you're a great dancer, especially on your Instagram. And then you're on TikTok and you have like 2.6 million followers on TikTok. <laughs> Do you really? Something like that. I don't know. I don't keep up with it. I can't even, I can't do a TikTok, but I need you to teach me a TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to set some time aside when you're dancing in the morning. I'll, yeah. I'll yeah, show yeah. you some, some no. trends. I'm learning from the younger generations at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else you want to share about your journey, about anyone who's listening and going through their own journey, whether suffering from an eating disorder or a depression or any state that they're in, just in like a message? Yes, I I do have something I want to share. I would love for us to get curious about how we view our bodies because from society, from even our medical frameworks, we often see the body as a tool that we're using, or maybe it's a project we're trying to complete, or an object we're fixing through XYZ. In reality, the body, and you know, I would call it the universal body, including your head, your mind, your brain, and everything, is where you literally experience your entire life. And there is important information coming from your body all day long about basic needs, about whether or not you feel safe. There are patterns and ways that we have learned to relate to ourselves and others. And all of this creates a story. It's a story that we embody about ourselves every day. A story about reality that we enact on others through our worldviews and our you know, behaviors and actions. So I invite you to broaden the topic of mind and body and mental health and physical health and really start to see, oh, this is a deeper experience and there's a deeper invitation to connect and to understand and also then to heal to learn new ways of relating, if that means intimacy or building trust or gaining confidence to pursue a career goal that right now feels like, oh, I could never handle that. Just start to get curious about the story you're embodying daily. And um, the last part of that is if 
you want to learn some of these stress relief techniques and mental health tools. And, you know, actually, I think if you go on our Instagram, we already have an offer right now. You can do 60 days totally free on Movement Genius. We've got 150 plus videos. You'll find three minute resets to 30 minute classes. And I truly invite you for your own sake, try it, no strings attached. And recognize that this is, you know, this is a gateway to shifting your entire quality of life. It's not just a gold star for hitting that, you know, singular workout for that day. It's you're so much bigger and more dimensional and interesting and wonderful. So, you know, celebrate yourself in your wholeness. And if we can be a part of that, let us know. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. We'll put everything in the show notes. And Bobby, we're going to do Movement Genius one morning. Yay! Together. <laughs> you can do it from the comfort of your chair. We've got yeah. a whole series called At Your Desk. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> I love it. You've been such a joy to chat with. And you're so open. And you have such a gift of sharing and everything that you've been through. And I really appreciate having you here. Thank you so much. And also, again, congratulations on just all of the different verticals. You are so inspirational to see someone who's walked the walk that I'm now beginning to walk. So thank you. And also take care of yourself. Yes. Thank you for joining us today and every Wednesday. If you or anyone you know needs help now, text HERO to 741-741 to connect with a crisis counselor. Our crisis text line is private and confidential. If you loved this episode or think a loved one could benefit from listening, please share. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the.big.silence. Head over to thebigsilence.com to sign up for our newsletter to stay in the loop for live events coming up and details on the release of my memoir, The Big Silence. And as always, we'd love a like, subscribe, and leave a review on anywhere the podcast can be found. I love you, and I will see you next Wednesday. One, two, three, sing it. Here's to radical self-love, the type of love that will defeat anxiety, the type of love that defeats depression. This is the one life. This is the moment. This is the time to dig in, to be who you already are. The big silence. Silence. The big silence.